Welcome back to the program. The rate of voter participation in America continues to decline. Yes, some of it is our politics today, but another part of it just may be a failure to embrace the true meaning of citizenship. And it's no wonder some of the fundamental ideas of what it means to be a citizen, the ability to reason, to analyze, and to articulate those views has gone into remission. In our education today, we are obsessed with what is called STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, all very important, but lost in this obsession is writing, history, rhetoric, and the arts. Governors around the country are defunding liberal arts programs in state universities. The president is putting down art history, and educational institutions from K-12 to our universities are responding to the pressure. There seems to be no regard for the fact that today's technology may be tomorrow's nostalgia, but the ability to learn, think, and write is forever. Taking up this cause of liberal education is my guest, Fareed Zakaria, one of our premier foreign policy analysts, the host of Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN, and a columnist for the Washington Post. It is my pleasure to welcome Fareed Zakaria here to talk about his new book, In Defense of a Liberal Education. Fareed, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. It does seem that we have entered into what really has become a zero-sum game between STEM, science, education, math on the one hand, and the liberal arts on the other. When did we fall into this pattern? It's a fascinating question. I mean, part of what's happened is that STEM uh, technology has gotten very sexy in the last uh, decade or two, and as we know why, um, you know, it's because of the money. It's because it feels like if you are doing technology, you could become a billionaire. Uh, and of course, you know, the reality is that a few people do, but uh, there is also a broader reality that there are a lot of jobs in Silicon Valley are re- related to it, and they're uh, held by young people. Now, there was a time that being a writer uh, was cool. You know, the world of Norman Mailer and Hunter right. Thompson and, and all that. But now, right now, the humanities are not, uh, are not so cool. Uh, and so that, I think, has some part to do with it. But a greater portion of it is the anxiety that people feel about jobs and about the middle class. And I fully understand that. The problem is the data does not show that, you know, the way to make sure that you get a great job for the rest of your life and succeed is to, is to be an engineer, particularly if you have no particular aptitude for it. I mean, being a, there is no real market for bad engineers. The, the reality is engineers start off with a somewhat higher salary. Most liberal arts majors make it up over the long run, particularly if they go to graduate school. But the bigger point is do what you love follow your passion, do it well, work hard, and with that and a little bit of luck, you're likely to do much better because you've got 40 years of work, 40 or 50 years of work. You have no idea what your third job is going to be. You don't know what job it's going to be. You don't know what industry it's going to be in. What you need are strong, basic skills. Some in the sciences, a lot outside of the sciences. Is there something about this that is kind of faddish? For a while before the recession in 2008, 2009, everybody that was going through universities and colleges wanted to go to business school. They wanted to work on Wall Street. Post-recession, we're focusing more on this skills-based and and the the STEM stuff we're talking about. Is this a fad that simply will go out of favor when the reality that you're talking about catches up with it? 
It's very interesting that you put it that way, because if you look uh, back, you do see very distinct fads in education. Um, as you said, you know, business has become a very popular major. And my theory about that is because all this talk about skills has, you know, has not lured those many people into the sciences because, you know, you have to have an aptitude for it. It's also hard. What it's done is make people forsake the humanities and do pre-professional founding stuff, you know, as they major business studies, communication arts, all this kind of stuff. And the reality is that's all stuff you could learn on the job. And what you're missing is the, is the strong basic skill. So a, a, a big recruitment uh, organization said to me, uh, the guy who runs it said to me, we find that 85% of what we need is basic smarts and social skills, people skills, the most you know, crucial part. 15% is specific knowledge about anything. And this guy, you know, these guys do thousands and thousands of, uh, of, of recruitments uh, every year. And so I hope that you're right. Um, I think, you know, if you think of languages, we saw, we've seen these fads where everyone was learning Japanese in the 80s and 90s. Now everyone thinks Mandarin is going to be the key to, to, to success. But it does, as you say, over time, the, the eternal verities endure, the sense that you need basic skills. You need to be able to think, to read, to write. Uh, and I certainly hope that's where we're going. It does seem that Steve Jobs in particular really nailed it with respect to technology when he talked about the importance of technology being married to the liberal arts. And unless there's a human element to the technology, it's not going to be functional in 21st century society. Well, and particularly for us, you know, we are a rich, advanced industrial country. We are not going to make, uh, we're not going to dominate the 21st century by making cheaper computer chips or cars than the, you know, than the South Koreans or the Chinese. They're, that's what they're going to do. They pay their engineers, you know, a half what, what we would pay our engineers in, in China. So, of course, they're going to do more of the basic uh, manufactured engineering products. What we're going to do well is figure out how does technology interact with human beings? What is the next frontier, uh, whether it's in, in Pure, you know, in, in um, uh, computer science, whether it's in nanotechnology, whether it's in biotechnology, uh, and then, as you say, humanize it, make it something that that you, that people want to use, that people enjoy using, and this has become true, largely speaking, of every uh, advanced or post-industrial industry. Look, you can make a sneaker for twenty dollars pretty much anywhere in the world now. The crucial question, if you're a businessman, is how do you sell it for 200? And the way you sell it for 200 is you build a story around it. You, you know, you, it, it's about the brand, the marketing, the design. How did that Howard Schultz manage to sell co- a coffee that was 50 cents right. for seven dollars? Right. That's a business genius, not technological genius. And that's where service economies generally go, and we are increasingly, overwhelmingly, a service economy. How important is entrepreneurialism in this, and should that be something that helps bridge this divide between skills on the one hand and humanity on the other, that, that the, this idea is really the, the central bridge in some ways? You're absolutely right. So what I find is in the reaction to this book, uh, and in, in the course of uh, re- reporting it, the people who were most attracted to my thesis uh, were the tech entrepreneurs and, you know, humanities people as well, for sure. But in the technology world, it was the entrepreneurs because 
they had had to start a company, hire people, and they realized they needed more than just technology. They needed, as, uh, as, as Steve Jobs said, technology married to the humanities, married to social skills, people skills, design skills. Um, it, the, somebody who's just um, you know, a mid-level engineer at a place, at a big, at a big tec- uh, technical company, may just be doing his or her thing. But the guy who's looking above, who's gotten into senior management, who's starting a company, they always understand that what you need is this, this more rounded uh, set of skills. So I do think, and if you look at Jeff Bezos at, at Amazon, I, I talk in the book about his senior strategy meetings, which are fascinating. So he at Amazon, and, and Bezos is himself a Princeton uh, graduate, so he got a well-rounded education, though he did major in engineering, so he's gotten a bit of both. He starts the meeting with a 30-minute period of quiet reading where the person who's presenting has to have written a seven-page single-spaced memo outlining what he wants. And the reason he wants it written is, A, he wants to make sure that it's logically coherent, that you can present it clearly and articulately both to your, your colleagues and to the consumer eventually, and he wants to make sure that everyone's actually read it and isn't, pardon the expression, bullshitting. And so he says... I don't want everyone to pretend they've read the memo. We are all going to read it together. Now, that is an emphasis, and he's very clear about this. He says, I think you can't think clearly if you don't write clearly. That's a perfect illustration of how you you need the technology, but you also need the humanities skills. The other example of that is one that you tell about Walter Lippmann, who was once asked, the great columnist who was once asked a question about something, and his answer was, well, I really don't know what I think. I haven't written about it yet. But I think we all find that we all have ideas buzzing around in our heads. And then when you sit down and try to write them, you realize that, you know, at least I do, well, I had this idea, but it was sort of half-formed, and it's not actually logically coherent, and I don't really have a lot of evidence for it. It's when you, the, it's the, the act of writing something down that, that organizes your thoughts, that forces you to make sure that there's a logical coherence to them, that forces you to go out and get evidence for it. And that would be true if you're writing a business memo, if you're writing a plan for, you know, for a startup, if you're trying to convince somebody to buy your product, uh, if you're trying to convince somebody else to do some kind of deal. Uh, I, I, Norm Augustin, who was the CEO of Lockheed Martin, said that the thing he realized in his life was the most, single most important thing was the ability to communicate your ideas. Because if you can't do that, you may have the best idea in the world. Nobody's going to understand it. To what extent are we setting the table or not for the, for liberal arts in the universities by virtue of what we're doing now with Common Core? So Common Core for the schools is, I think, basically a very good idea because it brings the bottom up, because it forces attention to, uh, you know, to, to certain subjects, make sure you follow some material. At the very high level, with, you know, which is the kind of best public schools, elite private schools, I worry that it, uh, it's too, there's too much testing and there's too much, uh, you know, there's focus on, for example, the kind of march through the AP uh, courses that, that kid, you know, I have a kid who's uh, in high school, my son, and I, I noticed that at that level, you kind of wish that they had a little more time to fall in love with the subjects, to problem solve, to you know, to just kind of uh, follow their own passions. But I think that the problem is with, you know, what Common Core is trying to do is to, 
is to deal with everyone. Uh, you know, like any uh, policy, when you have a, a huge number of three hundred countries, three hundred million, and you're trying to create a, uh, something you know that work for everybody. It's a blunt instrument, but on the whole, you're right. It it, it forces us to focus in on the core, as it says, and it also focuses, uh, forces those schools that are not performing to be outed. You know, one of the most interesting things about Common Core has been the reaction, not among, you know, the kind of teachers' unions and people like that. You knew that they were going to be resistant. It's the parents. Parents have been uh, very resistant because one of the things the Common Core does is it tests the schools. And guess what? It turns out a lot of the schools aren't functioning well. And people don't want to believe that. You know, we all believe about education what we believe about the United States Congress. We all think education is screwed up in America, but our high school that our kids go to, you know, the public high school is, is fine. Right. Uh, so the same way we hate Congress, but we keep reelecting our congressmen. The truth is these schools are not fine. They're, they're, you know, they're not teaching math well. They're not teaching uh, English and, and writing well. And we need to do something about it. To what extent... Is the pushback to liberal arts and all that it involves, to what extent is it caught up, for better or worse, in the polarization that we have in our politics today? Very interesting question. Um, one of the, the areas of hostility to the liberal arts, I think, comes from, you know, the, 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 the Republican um, attack on it is twofold. One part is this sort of, let's go out and go, go, go and do jobs and, you know, get, get, get jobs. What's amusing about it, as I point out in the book, is some of the people attacking it, like William Bennett, the former Secretary of Education, who literally was on his show uh, with, a, with a governor, I think it was of Florida, uh, who says, uh, and he says to him, he, William Bennett says, why do we need more PhDs in philosophy? William Bennett is a PhD in philosophy right. and has ended up being an entrepreneur, has ended up being a talk show host, was the secretary of education. Was you know, He's had multiple careers and then done just fine with that training, but he thinks nobody else, you know, we don't need it anymore. It's like, like the immigrant who wants to pull up the ladder. But, but I think that the, you know, the, the key here is that there are a lot of people on the right who feel that these universities have become hotbeds of radicalism and uh, liberalism. And you know what? There is some truth to that. That is that the humanities have got unnecessarily politicized. They've also sort of started offering a lot of obscure courses, which are less about politics and more about the fact that professors tend to offer courses on the subjects they're working on. And as you become more research-oriented, the subjects become more and more narrow. So there is something there. The humanities has to recognize that it has to offer engaging big picture courses it has to be rigorous that's one thing that you know i think has changed a lot i mean in even in my time when when you if you got a degree even from english from an ivy league university in the 50s or 60s that was one of the hardest subjects you could take getting an a in it was very hard today the humanities have become the easy majors and science is hard a lot of employers frankly i think like the sciences not so much because what you're learning there. If you're doing physics and you get hired on Wall Street, the guy doesn't care that you're doing physics. What they like is the rigor, the fact that they know this kid is smart, he's worked hard, he has good study habits. And if you can get back to some of that, 
I think it will make a difference, and it will also defang some of the criticism that is coming from, from conservatives who say, oh, you know, humanities has just become a, a hotbed of politically correct nonsense. Talk a little bit about employers and business, and A, what, they, what you think they want to see, and to what extent can big business really influence this debate in some powerful ways? So when you talk to businesses, when you look at the data, what you see overwhelmingly is that what they are looking for is people who are smart, who are hardworking, uh, who have good habits, and who are willing to learn whatever it takes. Because, you know, the jobs are always changing. So I'll give you an example. My wife worked at uh, Bain many years ago. In fact, she worked for Bain, at Bain Capital for Mitt Romney. But at Bain, which was the big consulting company, one of the big ones, they either did or they they would cite this study where they would find there was a very strong correlation uh, between good athletes um, and people who performed well at Bain. And they were trying to figure out why. And the reason was, they, 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 they determined, was it showed that you had discipline, that you were willing to get up at six in the morning and do three hours of practice if it, that's what it took, that you were, you know, you understood that the idea of no pain, no gain, that you've got to put in some work and then, you know, you, you get rewarded. You were a good team player that there were these characteristics that were overwhelmingly more important than whether or not the person had taken you know, engineering or finance uh, in, in their background. And I think that employers need to sort of try to explain that to people because the truth is if you tell everybody that what you should all do is a certain set of narrow subjects, first of all, not everyone is good at them. They're not going to do well in them. Secondly, you're, you're actually you're not going to get a lot of out-of-the-box thinking. You're not going to get a lot of creativity if everyone is a mechanical engineer, right? I mean, the, we know that creativity, uh, change, innovation comes when disciplines collide, when people approach something from a different perspective. Steve Jobs says the single most important class he ever took was a class in calligraphy. Right. What, and it, that was what gave him an understanding of how computers should look and feel. And, and that's what produced the, the distinctive font of the Mac, of the Mac uh, when it started out. So we, we need more of that. And we need businesses to articulate that more rather than sort of sending people off on these very narrow subjects. In particular, as I said, the sort of idea that you need to be a business major to go into business is silly. Business is about life. And you could, you know, you're much better off learning about life and human beings and so society and sociology and how how to write. And then you get to a business, you know, you learn how to write, how to how to do what you have to in that business. To what extent has the dramatically increasing cost of college made everybody nervous about this very issue and really put the liberal arts in the background because everybody is so scared of the job market and the cost and paying back those student loans? I think that that's central. I think it's a very good point, you know, because I think that the way that people now think about it is, God, I'm going to have to pay so much that I need to be sure. I need a sure thing when I get out. I can't have, you know, and even parents must think, my God, you know, we're doing all this, we're spending all this money and the kid is going to go do what, art history? Uh, it's the wrong way to think about it. You know, the kid really wants to do art history and is passionate. Let him or her do art history. Think about art history. You learn foreign languages. You learn a lot about design and visual elements. You sometimes have to travel and work with, with people in different countries. Uh, and that's a wonderful background. Now, if you then want to go out and make money, yeah, you're going to have to find something that has some relationship to, to that, you know, and that might be in, in the world of entertainment or design or uh, things like that. You're not going to, you know, you can't 
become a professional art historian and say to yourself, I, you know, I'm expecting to become a millionaire. But the general basic training is, is, a, is a very good one. The good news on, on, the, on the cost issue is I do believe we're in, on the cusp of a revolution. The information technology is transforming education. Education has been entirely unchanged, really since the time of the Greeks. I mean, you think about it. Right. A guy would stand in front of a group of kids <laughs> and, and say stuff, and the kids would listen to it and later started writing it down. And that's basically what a seminar is today. Right? And think about that. 3,000 years and nothing has changed. Now it's changing. These online courses are a huge, huge shift, and they are beginning to change the pricing structure. So that if you can take... 20 courses from Stanford and MIT and Harvard and all these places and online. And if you, know, you go to an employer and say, look, I couldn't afford to go to these places, but I have taken all these courses and here's how I did. A lot of employers are going to start saying, you know what, we, that's, that's good enough for us. And if that starts happening, then you have huge pricing pressure on these colleges, right? You, you forget the Harvard and Stanford. They'll be able right. to do it fine because they're selling membership to a private club, as it were. But if you're a top 100 college if you're you know a college in the middle and you still charge fifty thousand dollars and the guy can get can take 32 courses whatever is your your full course load uh, for nothing that's it's going to be tough to justify spending charging fifty thousand dollars and finally what are you seeing and i know you devote some time in the book to this what are you seeing among millennials and how they've done in terms of absorbing some of this and how they're incorporating it into being good citizens and all the other things that they're trying to do today well it's fascinating we have this this image of millennials uh, which is very sour. I mean, if you look at Time magazine, you know, we, they, they used to call the baby boomers the me generation. Um, and I'm at the, at the absolute bottom end of the, of the baby boom, I think. I, I was born in 1964. Um, the, Time magazine did a cover story on the millennials, and they called them the me, me, me generation. And that's the general theme of young, about young people today, that, you know, they're sort of career-obsessed. There was this book that came out last year that called them excellent sheep, sheep right. meaning they're totally obsessed with themselves and their career. They have no curiosity. They don't want to do good. They don't want to, be, they don't want to engage in kind of reflection and soul craft and things like that. And I think that this is, a, frankly, just a bunch of old people, uh, uh, you know, dyspeptically looking at, at the young because the data shows exactly the opposite. The data shows, if you look at surveys, if you look at everything we can, uh, that younger people, millennials, are uh, basically... They want to do well, uh, but that hasn't changed that much over the last 30 or 40 years. That is that people, you know, the number one priority is, frankly, making a good living. Uh, the second is uh, having a good family for millennials. The third is often, you know, doing, doing good in some way, having some good positive social impact. And, you know, they tend to do it in their own way, which is not to go into politics, which people in the 60s would have done but instead to go into NGOs, to do kind of interesting charity work. Uh, there's a real sense of conscience that they have. They're, they're trying to be much more global uh, in their orientation. Uh, and I think that, you know, when I go to college campuses, those are the people I meet. I mean, I'm always struck by the degree to which these are very smart. They, they, they want to do well and do good at the same time. Uh, and they try to balance those by finding a way to, you know, get the good job, but also do something either, you know, take a year off, volunteer, do things part-time. And I also think that 
you know one of the great successes of uh, of the end of the cold war and the and and the reality that liberal democracy is by and large you know been been accepted in so many countries in the world is that these people don't have to think about war revolution as much as as you know perhaps in a generation before they can focus in on some of the private virtues of creating a good family a good sense of ethics in their in themselves and their children john adams very famously said i study i have to study war and revolution so my children can study uh you know uh, history and and politics so that their children can study poetry and art and you know maybe these guys are writing apps rather than studying poetry, but that's an adjustment for the age. Fareed Zakaria, his book is In Defense of a Liberal Education, just out from W.W. Norton. Fareed, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a